Hello, and welcome to the High Reliability Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Martin of Gosselin Martin Associates. As always, thank you so much for clicking on this podcast. Today's podcast is called Histories Facility Managers, Parkland Hospital and the JFK Assassination. It originally ran on our Healthcare Facilities Network YouTube channel in two episodes. So if you want to watch the video of this particular episode, you can catch it on our YouTube network. I'll introduce the, um, you know, our guests and the concept when we roll over to the Healthcare Facilities Network. But essentially, I've always, um, you know, and if you've heard me talk before, you know this, I've always loved American history. And especially on the uh, podcast and the Facilities Network, always trying to find ways to tie um, real world events into what we do here in Healthcare Facilities Management. So, you may say, well, what does Parkland Hospital and the JFK assassination have to do to get to have to do with each other? Excuse me. Well, as you probably know, uh, Parkland is where JFK was taken when he was shot. It was about 3.7 miles away from Daly Plaza, Dealey Plaza, to be exact, 3.7. Um, and so what we wanted to do is look at the impact of that assassination on the facility staff and the emerg emergency management staff though emergency management didn't exist as a staff back in 1963. But we wanted to look at the events um, that occurred through the prism of a facility director and emergency management director. And so we've enlisted Dave Neely as the facility manager, Jeff Henney as the emergency management uh, director there. They um, kindly went back in time to 1963 and played those roles. The podcast also touches on, you know, the relationship between EM and facilities today. So we jump back and forth a little bit between 2024 and 1963. So it was a fun podcast to do. It was a fun show to do. If you have any um, any ideas as to like another Histories Facility Managers that we can do, uh, let me know. Histories Facility Managers is on our YouTube channel um, as a concept Past episodes have looked at Abraham Lincoln, um, also looked at the sinking of a vessel off of Cape Cod in, in the 1950s and the Coast Guard's response to that and how they dealt with it. So um, it's a topic I enjoy. I had fun doing this. And as I said, I, I thank Dave and I thank Jeff for appearing with me. So with that, I will kick it over to the Healthcare Facilities Network, and we will hear history's facility managers, Parkland Hospital and the JFK assassination. As always, thanks for clicking on this episode, and have a great day. Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Facilities Network. For a minute there, I couldn't remember if we were recording a podcast or doing a, a YouTube show. But this is the Healthcare Facilities Network, and I'm very happy that you clicked on this episode. And I'm happy to be joined by my two guests for an episode that's a little bit different than what we have done in the past. First, my two guests, by way of introduction, um, on the same row is me. We have Dave Neely. Dave is the Senior Director of Engineering up at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. Dave, good morning. Thank you for joining. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for having me. No title change since the last time we spoke or since no, I... <laughs> no title change. Nope. <laughs> you always like to make sure these things change rapidly these days. And down at the bottom part of the screen, we have Jeff Henney, who is joining us. Jeff is the Manager of Safety and Emergency Management at Penn Medicine down in Pennsylvania under the guise or under the umbrella of Penn Health. Jeff, good morning. Thank you for joining. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having us. Did I get everything right on that as well, title-wise? <laughs> yep, you're great. Okay. okay, well, thanks, guys, for joining me. So today's episode, um, <laughs> and it was suggested to me by somebody to do something like this, which is why we're doing it. We're going to take a look back at the date of November 22nd, 1963, which in addition to having been my dad's 32nd birthday, was also the day that JFK was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And what we want to do is look at that day through the prism of the Director of Facilities Management and the Director of Safety and Emergency Management at Parkland Hospital in Dallas from their perspective on the day before, 
the day of and the day after that tragic event. So it's kind of a facilities and emergency management perspective on the tragic assassination of JFK. You know, it's very easy. Um, it's easy as we look back on it now, what that happened, what, some 60 years ago now, you kind of forget that there was a human being involved in that. And there was a family involved in that, especially with the mythology that Kennedy's over the years. So I always want to be, as we talk about these issues, sometimes you kind of forget it. this happened because somebody was killed, somebody was assassinated. So I want to be, you know, obviously respectful of that, even though the mythology of JFK has grown far beyond what occurred on November 22nd of 1963. And then the second thing, um, just a podcast for folks, Rob Reiner, and I know Reiner uh, can elicit responses on the political spectrum because he jumps into politics quite a bit. So independent of any politics, because we avoid politics on this, he released a great podcast at the end of last year. It's called Who Killed JFK? Um, it's 10 episodes. And if you haven't listened to it, they're all released now. So you can binge it if you want. Um, but if you haven't listened to it, I would recommend it. Uh, it was very interesting. No matter how much you think you know about the subject, um, you will learn something. So who killed JFK? Rob Reiner, uh, highly recommended. So kind of with those um, caveats out of the way, what I'd like to do is we're going to make Dave the director of FM at Parkland Hospital, and we're going to make Jeff the director of safety and emergency at Parkland Hospital. But before we take a step back in time to 1963, let's just talk a little bit about today. Um, Dave, I know your location up in Portland, Maine is frequented, was frequented. Some of them have passed away now by the Bush family, who is relatively local with their vacation home up in, in the main area. I know that your maternity ward, I think, your big building there named after Barbara Bush. Yep, Barbara Bush, Bush Children's Hospital. Barbara Bush Children's Hospital. So just in general, Dave, how do you prepare? How does your facility prepare when you know that the past president is coming or came to your location? What happens when you're preparing? And I hate the term VIP, because really I hate to elevate anybody above anybody else because we're all the same. For as much as I cannot stand the term, I'm going to use it. When a VIP, when your administration deems somebody to be a VIP, what do you guys, what do you do? How does it impact you? Well, the, the planning's done in advance. Um, I've been here for two and a half years, and I was about a year in, and I got a call from uh, security telling me that the Secret Service was going to be here tomorrow to do a tour. Um, and I'm like, okay, whatever. Well, so this guy showed up in, in jeans and a final shirt. Uh, certainly not my expectation for Secret Service, but he was here to do a building tour. And they do a building tour every few years to see what's changed so we we got down into the sub basements and basements and uh crawl spaces and all all of the places that the public generally doesn't go to hmm. uh, it was just to update them on any changes we may have made and what kind of access they might need into the building if there was an event what areas in the building they might have to protect uh, but that's since i've been here that's basically been the majority of it the um, the Bush sisters were here recently, and they actually did a a, um, a TV production. Uh, one of the Bush sisters was visiting the the compound in Kenny Bunkport, and she went into labor early. <laughs> so, apparently, unbeknownst to her, she was going to the Barbara Bush Children's Center. Uh, <laughs> she didn't realize that the place she was going was named after mom, um, so or grandma rather. Um, so. She got here and was delighted at that fact. They delivered the baby. Everything was fine. Uh, and then uh, the two Bush sisters did a follow-up. Well, the the prep that was done for the follow-up was uh, essentially making sure that the paint was in order and there was a clear path. <laughs> uh, you know, we did the facilities thing that we always do. Um, but that was about the extent of it. Uh, I would imagine when the Bushes were in office, though, there was a great deal more time spent here. Uh, by the uh, by by the by the Secret Service to make sure that the facility was ready and prepared in the event of one of the bushes having to be brought here. This is a trauma center, so this is the place that they would bring them to. Mm. How long did that Secret Service tour last, uh, Dave? Oh, the better part of a day. And that's when they were out of office. They were out of office, yeah. yeah. So I would imagine when they were in office, it was a, a regular thing. 
uh, and probably more than more than one agent uh, searching the grounds. The agent had spent a great deal of time with the Bushes uh, on the compound here and spoke very highly, highly of them and the, uh, you know, the fact that they were very nice people, very easy to work with. It's always amazing to me the logistics that goes on you know, in the, with these events, all of the, I mean, every day, you know, especially when you're in office, every day, no matter where you go, the level of, of planning. Jeff, yeah. how about you? You're down in a major metropolitan area with a major hospital down in Philadelphia. Any uh, any experiences with that? A lot. Um, so, considering uh, we have a brand new patient tower, um, and President Biden, uh, and other, and plus we're right next right next door to me. Like our street is the University of Penn, so you know obviously Penn now is very it's an Ivy League school, very prestigious. Yeah. Um, just like Dartmouth, Cornell, Yale, etc. Um, but a lot of dignitaries and VIPs do come into the area because their kids go to school there. So working a lot with Penn Police, uh, local PD, uh, but we do have a lot of White House, uh, just as Dave said, uh, tours. But also there's a doctor from the Hammer Team, which is the doctors for the president so oh. that travel with um you know whoever the president is at the time you know even the vice president so they do walkthroughs and then we had our own, own secret service walkthroughs um also because of elections you know he's hitting the cities harder that are swing states just like pence he is yeah and um so we had to update a lot of forms also i, I um one footnote for those people that do have vips um updating our two policies one is you know uh policy for the secret service when they come in you know uh, like a huddle sheet basically for security and leadership and then also uh which also covers some vip pieces um as well but also we have a vip huddle sheet for the ed uh so we have the largest ed in the tri-state area right now uh you know how to handle things uh when people come in um you know, where we're going to place, place people just like Dave has at this facility or any facility. Um, Secret Service will come in, they will take over, but, you know, those walkthroughs help to kind of um, work together as a team, not more, you know, um, an opposing force trying to come in and take over. Because um, they know you have a normal business to run. You know, right. So, um, again, all depends on acuity what happens, but we do have a trauma center four blocks away from us here. So they do a lot of walk inspections as well as over there, uh, just as much as they do here, just to update their records and everything. Uh, but it's funny how some of their documents do become outdated. Um, you know, uh, even their forms, I had to tweak a little bit for formatting and other stuff like that. But it was just, uh, uh, but they were, you know, again, like Dave said, one guy was just dressed down, the other two guys were in suits. <laughs> yeah. So it just depends on the flavor of, of, of their background, you know. But uh, it's interesting. I, you know, I always find it fun because yeah. of the day. Um, you know, I was they invite other people that come on the tour, and I try to tell them, just keep it basic. They're there for a snapshot. You know, the, you know, well, we can show them this. I go, I go. No offense, they don't care about that. That's our <laughs> that's our responsibility. Uh, I know you want to show off things, but that's you know, <laughs> not the time to do that. They're just here to, just for a chat box. <laughs> right. Right. I remember we were building um we were building a um continuing care retirement community that had a healthcare component to it it had a uh um a um memory care and uh, support unit to it and it was being the major donor was Sheldon Adelson and Sheldon Adelson who's now deceased um but he was a Jew Jewish businessman who was loaded he was a local guy out of Dorchester up here in Massachusetts <laughs> got involved in casinos and overseas and made a ton of money and, and was very active um, politically and, and with many causes. And we were doing the groundbreaking and the day, two days before the groundbreaking, and it was a greenfield site. It was a beautiful construction project because it was one of those things where you didn't have to worry about residents. You didn't have to worry about brownfield construction. It was just a beautiful, pristine site. And, but one day it's, it's all, nothing's up yet. And these big black suburbans come onto the site and out of it come the Mossad. He had Mossad who, who mm. watched him. And these were big imposing guys. These guys were dressed in black suits, you know, six, four, six, five. And you could see, but they came on and, you know, they, where's he going? What are we doing? What's the site like? But it, 
Yeah, I, I just remember it was a little bit intimidating when you see them get out and then they, you know, they know what they're looking for and then they're gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember when we had the Pope visit, you know, we had multi-jurisdictional walkers and everybody was, each jurisdiction was driving for certain spots, certain helipads they used throughout <laughs> the city. Uh, we had a lot of pre-meetings. It was a great experience. Yeah. But it's just like, who's going to trump who exactly. you know, on the protocol? I'm like, well, Secret Service goes first. Yeah. You know, the state police came in. We want to use this. I'm like, you're not. You already got trumped. <laughs> you know? so it's fun. Well, the nice thing about that, Jeff, maybe in some ways is you're not creating, like the pecking order is established. You're, you're just, you know, it's not you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, and we try to, you know, and I'll just say this real quick. In one meeting, they said it was a no-fly zone over Philadelphia. And everyone, you know, all the hospitals are there. And we looked at each other and I said, no one's raising their hands. So I raised my hand. I go, that's not an option. Never and the lead secret service goes, well, what do you mean? I go, well, I go, how are you going to get a heart or a trauma victim across the city or an incoming or a lung or something that a patient needs desperately? I go, if anything, they need to clear it with normal dispatch, which would be the city of Philadelphia OEM and, and so forth. And they're like, all right. That's acceptable. <laughs> yeah. like, like you need to think first before, you know. This yeah. Is Jeff, I like to turn that around on them and say, if your father needed a heart <laughs> and that was the only way to get it here, you'd want to change the rules, wouldn't you? And they 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 flex. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you guys have, have dealt with them, they must be very, fo they're fo they must be focused on mission, right? And whatever that mission is kind of with those blinders on. And I guess that's your <laughs> job to, kind of go through those blinders so we're the great blunders <laughs> or you know we want to call that you know yo Jeff, i guess i didn't i'm sure i knew this you're in a really busy part of that city i guess i don't know if i knew that you pen was across the street from you i can put a golf ball and hit the one of the buildings that's how <laughs> wow know. well let's uh let's go back a little bit in time to November 21st, 1963. So obviously that would be the day before uh, the president's visit. Now, one of the caveats obviously is 2024 is not 1963, right? So we're looking at the world is completely changing. Probably part of it is due to this assassination, which, you know, which changed a lot. And it changed a lot how people, you know, view their history. So the world has certainly changed and the way the hospitals operate has certainly changed. Um, but, you know, you're in Parkland, Parkland, accent almost came out there. You're uh, you're in Parkland Hospital. You're doing your jobs. Dealey Plaza, where Kennedy was shot, is just about 3.7 miles away from where Parkland is. So it's very, very close. Now, you couldn't have foreseen the assassination, but the day before, what would you be doing? What do you think they were doing? Anybody want to take a crack at that first? You know, I probably essentially nothing. Um, you know, I, I think about I, I was in New Hampshire at, at Exeter Hospital and uh, Barack Obama visited uh, Portsmouth. Five, six miles away. Um, you know, the day before we had a just a sit, quick sit down to, to remind everybody that he would be in town. Um, and there really wasn't a, a heck of a lot for us to do. Um, you know, we had our, our normal emergency planning that was obviously all in place. But I, I think the biggest thing was just acknowledging the fact that a dignitary would be nearby. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there was there was the potential, not so much for the president to come to us. More so if he if there was an issue, he would have gone to Portsmouth Hospital and we would have gotten the fallout that might have had to been shifted from there to our location. So I, I think for the most part, we might be preparing for a multi-casualty incident. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that would be about it. Yeah. Look at the roles back then versus now. Back then, there wasn't a lot of safety or emergency managers. They were all fire marshals, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, that rolled up usually to either security or for the facility manager. Um, and emergency management really wasn't a thing back then, to yeah. a certain degree. Um, Jeff, like when did day. when did the emergency manager role kind of become what it is? I'm I'm. I think pretty much I think in the 
mid, mid to late 70s, in my mind, you know, with the dawn of um, different OSHA regulations, some of the large uh, environmental issues, uh, you know, Paul Paul, uh, the new carbide incident that they had, um, you know, um, some OSHA acts for, you know, for emergency management created. So I think from then, you know, um, especially in the process safety side for gas companies, chemical plants, that's where it really kind of took off. Mm-hmm. You know, they had some, probably some loose safety guys back then, but it wasn't anything like it is today. You know, in the 70s when OSHA really started to take form, DEP, all, all the different, the alphabet soup of regulatory agencies. Yeah, that kind yeah. of created the need. You know, um, I think for the for in the smaller facilities, it was piggybacked on the director of engineering. Yeah. And that was extremely common. And, and actually, in our case, we had 15 hospitals, a lot of small ones. Um, and up until just recently, that was the director of engineering that was managing mm-hmm. the emergency preparedness and safety. Yeah. But even back then, I've had it at different places. Yeah, I mean, especially in rural areas, you're the chief cook and bottle washer. Mm -hmm. Unless you're like a large facilities now. um, I've even seen some hospitals trying to, again, curtail a little bit of the safety piece and trying to do it in-house. It doesn't work out that way. But back then, you know, I think for, I would think if if it was up, I was at Parkland, and I'm sure there's some folks from Texas might argue with me, but I think some folks have been trying to sneak out to try to go see the president. Yeah. <laughs> been more worried to try to losing staff uh, and anything to try to go see it. Um, and I kind of agree with Dave. They're probably not doing too much. Just probably let people know traffic alert, you know, possibly uh, because of road closures. Uh, and that's probably about it. You know, not yeah, like it is yeah. today. No, uh, no. And it's really hard to, um, it's hard to kind of go back in time. And I saw a thing. Um, why did I see this? Oh, because so we're recording this the week before um, or a couple of days before the NFC championship game where the Detroit Lions will play San Francisco. And so I saw a thing on Twitter that has the last time the uh, Lions were in the NFC championship. What was it like 1990 or the last time they made it this far? I think it was 1991 or 95. But there was a thing on Twitter about all of the all of the things we have now that we didn't have then the last time. And whenever you look at those lists, it kind of knocks you back a little bit, right? Because 1995 or 1991, I don't think they feel like they're long ago, but then <laughs> but then you see no. what we have now that we didn't have then. So it's really hard to think back to those times. Um, and and you, you know, you're you're exactly right. So on November 21st. We're not doing a lot, I guess, um, relative to to the to the presidential visit. But then, when things change, you know, I was doing a little bit of research for this because, again, there are so many people who know um, so much about it. But I guess it was about um, twelve thirty eight that Kennedy made his way to Parkland Hospital, and there was a, a MD who was a fourth year medical student. He was on his neurosurgery rotation at Parkland Hospital, and he recalls when the um, the call came in, and they were paging a doctor. He said, they're paging Dr. Clark Stat. I had no idea what it was and thought it might. So Dr. Clark looks out the window, looks and says, maybe the stat has something to do with those limousines that are coming into the hospital. They ran down the stairs to the emergency room. They get in their scrubs. There was already a Secret Service agent at the door. They get into the emergency room at the same time JFK was entering on a gurney. The time is 1238. So that's when Kennedy enters the hospital. What do you think? Two questions. Number one, can you guys explain a little bit of the interaction of your roles today in 2024? How you guys play off each other, how you interact with each other, what that, you know, the nature of the relationship between the facilities department, the emergency management team. So can we talk about today but then what do you think when that call comes in back in 1963, what are you guys doing at that moment? So let's start with now, and then we'll go back to then. I think our roles overlap constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm our, our safety department, our emergency management department and security department, we're, we're in almost constant communication, daily communication for everything that goes on in the, in the facility. 
I mean, you, you think about the, the security aspects of the building where we've got swipe cards for everything. Yeah. Uh, cameras all over the place. Well, all of that stuff needs to be maintained. And, and at the same time, establishing best practices for how to use them. Um, you know, we mechanically, we know the limits of the system, whereas security, safety, they know what they're trying to accomplish. So we have to work together to to figure out how to get the systems to to be compliant from from a life safety perspective, but also to accomplish the the objective for security. But the you know if even for something as simple as a snowstorm, we they, we talk through the event, so we make sure that we're covering each other and we're working as a team. Yeah, I agree with Dave one hundred percent. It's you know um, I call it the service departments. We all work together hardly. You know, the, we're like the, the eyes for the facility to make sure, you know, the staff and patients are safe and they just keep going for normal business continuity uh, for everything uh, to kind of make it seamless. Yeah. You know, for everything. So it's uh, it's always communication. You know, you look at stuff today versus back then. They didn't have cameras. They didn't have access control. Uh, they probably had security posts, you know, all over the place. Um, no sprinklers back then to a certain degree you know, full stations, you know, a lot of fire extinguishers, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of rounding in general, um, you know, for stuff versus today, you're using a lot of, you know, AI um, technology to help out track, trend, uh, statistics, everything for, you know, patient, you know, incoming versus, you know, set up the command center, you know, if me and Dave were working together, we'd be in the command center with security, you know, I have cameras set up, looking everything to the outside, you know, it showed secret service that when they would walk through. So obviously they would have posts, you know, at different areas. So they have the eyes and ears, what's going on. Um, um, you know, you want to set up break rooms for them, you know, touchdown spaces. Um, you, can, you know, again, that's why I said those huddle sheets are important to try to have a good game plan uh, to make a good offensive game plan when they come in. So they're not, you're not trying to look like you're fumbling. Yeah. Or trying to, you know, um, you know, uh, for folks. And, you know, having that documentation is important because of transition and turnover for staff. You know, um, and and I, I hate to say this, you know, I, I'm a big fan of writing things down and creating policy procedures and huddle sheets because of that institutional knowledge. As people retire and leave, yeah. there's facility managers that have hey, you're, you're 40, 45 years, and they walk down the hallway, they go up in the ceiling, there's a pipe valve here. Well, it's not marked. I know it's there. And it's he, there. You know, <laughs> he, he's right. Even on the university side, you know, we help out them because their guys are young um, and they don't know. But our guys have been around so long. They know their facilities just as much as they know ours. So, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a huge team effort. How has the um, staying in today, 2024, and Jeff, you kind of hit on it a little bit, but I guess, you know, society is pretty chaotic these days. You guys are both in located in, in, in cities, you know, metropolitan areas. How has the um, how have how have you guys had to not how have you guys had to change what you do or due to kind of the unrest that exists whether it's protest you know we see it all the time whether it's you know protesters who block the highway or you know, you have patients mentally you know mental mental illness is on the rise while beds decrease so you have patients who are coming in who are you know, unfortunately stabbing ED department personnel. How has kind of the, the evolution of society changed? It's obviously made this much more difficult. Are you guys, you, what's the approach to that? And how do you stay current and try to keep your people safe with all that goes on? Because everything comes through the hospital, right? You guys are, for good or bad, you are the focal point of that community when something happens. So how have you had to change due to society changing? You know, we just had an active shooter incident in Lewiston, just north of here. Yeah. Half hour north. Um, that was, it was quite a night. Yep. Um, I was actually in Jamaica when that happened. But anyway, <laughs> um, it's a good place to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, the reason, shortly after that, we started getting requests from every, every one of our hospitals. We need a camera here, a door there. Uh, you know, we we need armed guards in our lobbies and, you know, all kinds of security aspects. And, you know, it, 
you, you have to draw the line and say, wait a minute, you can't just go and do everything that everybody wants. You have to have a collective plan. And that's the process that we're going through. And it's going to cost millions of dollars hmm. to upgrade the, the security throughout, throughout all of the organizations uh, from parking lot lighting to cameras, uh, metal detectors at doors, uh, lockdown access. Uh, training people is probably one of the most difficult things. But Peter, you you went you went down the road of the behavioral health folks, and that's that's a major league crisis for those folks, but also for everybody else. So as a result of COVID, a lot of care centers have shut down because they can't afford to pay the salaries. And people have moved on from working directly for a care center, hospital, whatever, and gone to working for travelers. The cost is prohibitive and so many small centers can't sustain. So now what's happening is our emergency rooms are getting very overcrowded. Yeah. Um, and there's there's no second level for people to go to. So I was thinking about, you know, tying this back to the, the JFK situation or a, a a visit from a dignitary that that you know we we've heard stories about they evacuate a whole floor and the president takes over the whole floor of the hospital. Well, we're a 700 bed facility here and we had 730 patients last week. So how do you possibly yeah. um you know, evacuate a whole floor for the sake of one person. You really, you can't do it. It's not morally right. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah, things have changed major league. Um. And a lot of it comes, a good part of it comes back to the horrible behavioral health situation that we have in this country. Yeah, I, I was just, I was talking to somebody over the weekend about that. And he was telling me, he's trying to get somebody a little bit of help. And he was saying, you, it is almost impossible to do so. And then you throw on, some of the state to state regulate and just then you overlay a regulatory process and the insurance process. And it's very difficult and a huge issue. I don't want to go down that road because we, we, we all are probably unfortunately familiar with it. Yeah. Were you going to, uh, you know, talking about kind of that societal impact. It's, it's uh, the data's point is huge. Um, you know, we have patient safety calls every day. And then we flag patients that we know um, that might have a workplace violence issue or behavioral health issue. And we talk it after our patient safety call. It's just a rundown of all the safety alerts from the day before. And if people need help, you know, it's a cadence we started many years ago, uh, before, right before COVID. It's worked very well for us. Um, you know, we all have done a ton of, ton of safety huddles. I'm actually writing an article for ASHI on safety huddles, you know, with us. Uh, Coming in, when's it going to be out, Jeff? Uh, I think March. Myself and Katie Quinn from Idaho. Uh, okay. Associate uh, board member for Ashley. She's co-authoring with me. But um, that helps out a lot. Uh, we just opened up a new adult CRC center uh, 20 blocks away from us in West Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, as soon as we open it up, five minutes later, police are dropping a, a couple people off because just because of the needs of behavior. And again, we can go down this rabbit hole. Um, I have my own ideas what we need to do on a, a federal level just because of what I see, but um, that's we can do another podcast on yeah. that. <laughs> that. That Jeff's not a bad idea. I'm definitely going to follow up do, with you about that. We could yeah. do a Netflix series on that one. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, related to, you know, like they said, related back then, you know, um, a lot of that stuff for behavioral health really didn't exist back then. Yeah. You know, I hate to say this, they had institutions all over the place, as you know, as they closed in the late 70s, 80s, 90s, um, you know, you know, either they got torn down or become um, um, different stuff uh, now. Um, but it's, um, you know, I think back then there really wasn't, um, there really wasn't, you know, a lot of thought about behavioral health and tracking and trending people like they do now, like the Secret Service flags anybody, you know, through AI, if they blurb something on the internet. Back then there was no internet. Yeah. So the computer was the size of probably, five of my offices here, you know, right. the Whopper computer from Morgan's, you know, like those big ones. Um, yeah. And it did as much as your watch. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. It's but, crazy. you know, so back then, you know, having what would happen, unfortunately, to President Kennedy, 
really there may have been burp about it, but it probably was a lot on the watch on the on the traffic like there would be today versus back then. For yeah. Communication wise for the secret yeah. service and communication. So you know what's interesting is and just going back to that um the podcast that uh that Reiner did, there's a whole episode about Lee Harvey Oswald, obviously. Um and I'm not going to give it away. I, like I said, I would, people should listen to it, but just what, how they've tried to paint Oswald and how they talk about him in the podcast, just based on historical record, talking about illnesses and men, you know, it's, it's interesting when you talk about mental illness, it made me think of Lee Harvey Oswald and how historically sometimes he's been painted and what Reiner says about him. So um, mm-hmm. I don't want to give anything away. Have you guys listened to it? That podcast? No, no I'll go back. I think if you like history, you'd like it. Um, it's pretty entertaining. And like I said, I, I learned some, uh, you know, I learned some stuff. So I guess then coming in at 1238 PM, which is when the, that gurney enters that emergency room, they were in, he was in trauma room number one. Um, you know, the secret service enters there in charge, right? Jeff, you were talking about going on the offensive as opposed to being on the defensive when they come in. What's the first, relative to the, when the Secret Service comes into your hospital, whomever that policy is for, what is the first thing that your policy reads? What do you do? Well, it's, it's, if it's the ED, you know, you're going to have the staff create a huddle because we'll hear it over. Back then, they didn't have, like, the, it's called the HAVE system here for the city of Philadelphia. It's a What's it called, Jeff? A what system? H-A-S-T-E. It's from the fire board from city of Philadelphia. So you would hear those alerts in the overhead coming in. Um, back then, they didn't have that. Yeah. So yeah. they probably just heard something, and they didn't have a bunch of people rolling up to your hospital. Uh, and back then, it was an army probably swarming your you know, ED. Yes. Um, they probably <laughs> had only a few seconds to a few minutes just to create a quick huddle to try to clear out as much as you can to secure whatever you need to secure, either your trauma or recess bay areas. Um, and then we have a, a series of communication tiers uh, that can go out very quickly to, uh, you know, obviously me, but to leadership, senior leadership, and also um, your public information officer, um, because you're, you're, you're going to have people trying to come in, go undercover, try to get picks, you know, um, the staff know not to do that type of stuff, yeah. but, you know, um, but, you know, you want to kind of lock down. And back then, you could point back in the '60s. You could see somebody walk in with a gigantic camera. Right. Well, Another one being repressed. Now it's as, it's as much as a, as a pen. Yeah. Well. You know. And you know that in and of itself is huge. Just kind of think about that. Now it would be on Twitter. You would have the paparazzi coming into that hospital so quickly it would be flooded with it. Yeah. And you read, you know, back then, just in, in, in doing some of the research, you know, they called stat. That's how the doctors came down into the room. It sounded like people were, while the secret service controlled it, docs are coming in and out. Mrs. Kennedy is there in the corner and, you know, they asked one of the doctors his opinion and, and he was very graphic about it. And then he said, I looked over to my left and there she is standing there. So a very type of, you know, chaotic scene, but it was a different time, right? Yeah. Um, and then try to just maintain. Uh, and back then, like like they said, they would swarm in and push everybody out. And, you know, <clears throat> take over versus today. You know, uh, but then you know you don't want to make it too offensive or afraid to staff and other patients that are there. It's yeah. a different mentality than it is today versus back then. You know, um, I'm going to defend my hospital like a fort. You know, I know I know it's about another patient, but at the same time, I don't want. I don't want people, I don't want staff and patients to become afraid or intimidated. Like right. guys in black on black suits and then guys with AR-15 standing around. Yeah. Um, you know, because they will be around him or her, uh, you know, depending if it's a president or a dignitary uh, for that piece. So again, working with police, local PD, you know, doing those walkthroughs like me and Dave have been through helps out and get some familiarized with the facilities. Uh, versus back then, they probably didn't do a lot of um, walkthroughs of hospitals like they do today. Um, yeah. You know, they probably have their certain hospitals in their mind where they would take them, you know, in different areas, you know, a city like NYU, you know, Parkland, Walter Reed, um, you know, et cetera, throughout the country. Um, but, you know, versus today, they have a lot of, they have a huge itinerary of <laughs> um, 
different hospitals they go through, you know, just a pinpoint. So, you know, I, I think about the um, until the Bushes came to Kenny Bunkport in Maine, I'm, I'm going to think that nobody really thought of New England as a place that anything like this could happen. Hmm. Uh, that, you know, everything would be centered around Boston. Yeah. Any event that were to, to occur north of Boston would fly into Boston. Yep. Uh, but that that time has certainly changed. Yeah, no, it it, it really hasn't. You know, I, I was interested, you know, you brought it up there, Jeff, talking about like, there are obviously this is a hospital, so it's not shutting down because the president there because you already have patients in there. So William Manchester uh, wrote a book. It was called The Death of a President. I had to read a William Manchester book when I was in high school. Um, it was large and thick, but it was really good. That's the only like here. We used to have to read it every day. It was like 750 pages at the time. Seemed like it would take forever to get through. The Glory and the Dream was the name of it. Have you guys ever read The Glory and the Dream? No. It's William Manchester. But anyways, he wrote a book about the assassination, the death of a president. And he said a boy, Ronald Fuller, was in the hospital. He was bleeding from a fall. A man, Carl Tanner, had severe chest pains. A woman, Ada Byers, complained of nervousness. Staff treated 272 patients a day, one every five minutes in 1963. At the instance of John Kennedy's murder, 23 people were receiving attention for automobile injuries, animal bites, delirium treatments, interesting the way they phrase that, delirium treatments, infections, and suspicious discharges. So you had the 23 patients, and then John Conley, the uh, governor of Texas, was in trauma room two. So you had Kennedy in trauma room one. You had Conley, who was also obviously shot in trauma room two. And then you had all of those patients. So certainly a, a chaotic scene in that uh, that brief area. What would you guys, um, and again, even team, you know, team dynamics are different now, collaboration, uh, communication, all of those things are kind of constant these days. You guys are always thinking about your, you know, the, the folks who report up to you and your team members. But if, you know, the Secret Service is in charge, do you do anything and communication is different as well, but anything to your team at that moment? Are you, you know, do you want to talk to them? Do you want to gather them together, huddle? What are you thinking relative to what is your team doing and, and what do I need to do for them? You, you know, typically the the protocol is, the, the engineering team that are in the building would report to a location, typically back to one of the shops, uh, waiting for direction. So my I would expect that the Secret Service would have their uh, their their huddle set up. Um, we would have our incident command team set up and there'd be a liaison between our incident command team and the Secret Service's incident command team but then a liaison from our team back to the engineering department. And we would be there for any support that was needed. If there were back doors that needed to be covered, so no one was going to come in those doors and, and sneak in, we'd be there. If they needed um, help transporting patients around to free up space, uh, that's that's the kind of role that the engineering team would be called to, to participate in. Um, for the security team, a real a real incident. They're not going to have enough people in the building. Yeah. And the beauty of it is, well, we all carry radios, so it's a it's a really quick, easy way to communicate with a lot of people very quickly. And I I think during a, a you know, we we plan for all kinds of things, every incident that could come at us. But the in fact, our security director and I were talking about this the other day. We plan for all kinds of stuff. But push comes to shove when the event happens, it's 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 seat of the pants management. Hmm. You have to adjust to the particular situation. Yeah. And I, I think the other really complicating part is, you know, we plan for all these things, but most of our planning is around a full staff in the house. Hmm. Well, the full staff is here Monday through Friday, uh, you know, 7A to, to 4P. The rest of the time, it's not a full staff. Uh, so, you know, we, we concentrate our effort on normal business hours, but we have to have a whole different protocol for after hours. I mean, if an event mm -hmm. like this happened on a Saturday, there'd be a heck of a lot less people in the building yeah. to manage the situation than there would be on a, on a Tuesday. Yeah. Yep. I, I agree with Dave. A lot of times things happen at night or weekends. 
So it's, you know, the skeleton crew or the Alamo trying to defend until we can bring help in. Um, but it also comes down to communications and how you set up those levels of communications. You know, um, uh, today if there's a ton at our fingertips to use between uh, radios, mass notifications, texts, emails, overhead announcements. You know, um, back then and in, in, in when this happened, um, the only thing you probably really had was maybe an overhead announcement system yeah, um, and then the fire alarm system. But even then it was just bells. You know, it wasn't like you have today where you can pick up a mic and use it, you know, and do an announcement, you know, or have pre-canned messages. There was nothing back then. Yeah. Um, it was just all either telephone, the old rotary phone back then. Yeah. Or Twitter or Facebook or. Yeah. You know, but today there are, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, we talked about a few minutes ago, like trying to stay on top of, uh, alerts and stuff and there's websites out there to help you like data miner and other and other type of stuff that help you keep alert of events or situations like car wrecks plus mm -hmm. a, it might be an mci with a bus you know within our city um water main break you know we had that two in the city the last couple of days and then um you know or uh, some, you know talking with dave and also severe weather um you know so there's the communications today versus back then is like the Starship Enterprises versus <laughs> did, you, did you guys see, so again, we're recording this uh, January 23rd. So there was an ice storm in the South yesterday, um, Southwest. Did you guys see, there was a video, it was on Twitter, of course, because everything is on Twitter. I think it might've been Nashville. The fire truck yep. sliding on ice and whirling <laughs> around through it. <laughs> that nice. thing is kind of going downhill and it's twirling. It's unbelievable. Absolutely no control because it got caught on the ice. So yeah, you're, you know, it's funny. It's, there's so much out there. You mentioned, um, you mentioned the phone and communication. So um, in Manchester's book, um, the army signal corps commandeered Parkland's outgoing lines, but that's still left incoming ones to be handled by the regular switchboard operators. Dave, I know in your past, You've had telecom, right? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So these phone operators were soon overwhelmed. Manchester writes, already UPI bulletins. So UPI, if you're too young, AP and UPI, United Press International, was a, a, new, was a news organization well before Twitter. They would write news articles. So that's who UPI is. They're gone. Um, UPI bulletins were stimulating crank calls all over the world. In the next two hours, one girl, Phyllis Bartlett, she worked at Parkland, would log conversations with England, Canada, Australia, Venezuela, France, and Mexico. She wrote, every call coming in long distance is urgent, and everyone seems to have a title that demands priority. Most calls were not legitimate. Some were. Genuine insiders got through, as Ethel Kennedy, who was Bobby's wife, got through. So it's very interesting to think about all those, everything we kind of take for granted now you know, back in those days, and I guess added to the security, the time Oswald hadn't been arrested. So they, for all they knew, that killer is still out there somewhere. Now, it's probably not necessarily a priority for you, but I got to imagine Secret Service is like, we don't know who did this or where they are. Yeah, also, there's no street cameras like there are today. There's no ring cameras there are today, uh, you know, back then. You know. Yeah, so there's old school, productive, reasoning, you know, or like causal tree effect analysis, where you go from words to, you know, back to backwards to try to recreate the scene and figure out, you know, who was in there interviewing old school, interviewing people, that type of stuff. Yeah. Old school police work. Old school, right. old school police work. You know, you see, and I'll, I'll put one up in this, you see the pictures, the black and white pictures of what it was like when the, um, when the limo pulls into Parkland and people just scattering all over jeff i know you like history i always look at those pictures and you just wonder like what are people thinking they're probably just doing at that moment but you know looking back in time what what is their thought process and because we know the well we don't know the answers now always know the answers now but we know a lot more than they did at the time when they're entering parkland and just commandeering that hospital for the president um so you know, with with the world kind of going crazy in your hospital in 1963, what are you you you've met with your staff? 
what else, what else are you tell like are you playing a little bit and and again we're different now than they were then but are you, are you playing a little motivational leader or what, what is your approach with with them you know you always you always have to support staff through an incident like that like that any any incident um because pe- people will become discouraged and depressed and yeah you got to keep keep them rolling i mean i, I think back to september 11th and I was in New Jersey and the, the disruption to the hospital was just extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and and you, we did need to pull people together and say, OK, guys, it's a horrible situation, but we we got a job to do. Great example. And we have to we have to keep pushing uh, and, and do our job. So, um, yeah, you do. You do have to constantly reinforce with staff. Um, I, I think about the Lewiston shooting. And the, we had people, staff that were on lockdown in Lewiston because this guy was still loose. I mean, my, much like you were just saying with with, with Oswald well, still being loose. Um, we didn't know where this guy was. Mm. And, you know, the hospital here, the Lewiston is is a half hour away and we're on lockdown. Yeah. Every door of the place is locked and, and we're uh, watching everything. Well, at two o'clock in the morning, I reached out to my staff and said, guys, how are we doing? Is every are you guys okay? And reminded them that they needed to continue to be vigilant as they go outside the building because you don't know what you're going to run into. So yeah, I do think it is really important to continue reinforcing with staff that we will get through this uh, and make sure we provide whatever resources we need for them. Yeah, I mean to that point, Dave, it's, it's after the fact also to get like HR involved, pastoral care involved to get. Um, any emotional support for people, they might not want to talk to you. You know, um, a lot of people, you know, um, they might want to, you know, to talk to somebody offline in more of a private setting. So having those services set up, you know, and again, they, they didn't have a lot of that back then. You know, yeah. like they do, you know, yeah. having to support uh, pastoral care, you know, HR to help support staff wellness. Yep. You know, and because they don't want to take it home with them. Uh, you know, they want to be able to, um, you know, um, show that we, we all we all do care for our employees, but they go above and beyond what we've done before. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that would they have done? Um, would they have done like an after incident huddle to best practices command? Do you think they would have done any of that in retro? Would they have thought to do any of that? Or it's just speculation. But what you would today? What would you do? What do you think they would have done then? I would hope they would take advantage of the opportunity, but I, yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was four. Okay. So I don't really know. <laughs> well, no, no. <laughs> okay. Just speculation, Dave. Just, I'm not, I know you I, weren't on scene. <laughs> I, I would certainly but, hope that yeah. at a minimum, the ED staff would, would pull everybody together and security would pull their teams together and talk about the things that went well and the things that didn't go well. Um, but you know, uh, uh, an after action was, is something we do today for everything. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, you have a snowstorm and you have an after action, uh, <laughs> you guys would be all over it. Oh yeah. Yeah. But so probably too much. So, but what about, what do you think about that? Probably not, certainly not to the extent that we do today. Yeah. Um, but I, I would, I would think that any, any good manager would, would pull their staff together and, and, and talk it through. I mean, today's point back then you know there wasn't a hicks forms for emergency management use right nationally set up back then you know a lot of them started you know the california wildfires you know and developed over time you know through the 70s you know into the 80s uh, you know with nims uh, you know like i said the dawn of emergency management um so back then you know the secret services do, and police are doing their investigations because it's a murder scene yeah but you know I hope that you know, on the high side, if somebody did pull a huddle, that'd be great. But I'm not going right. to hold my breath. Well, you know, and that they, we do it today, or even like a, a fifth of what we do it today, you know, back then. Yeah, yeah. Well, it says you know Kennedy. Um, Kennedy was out of Parkland by two o'clock, and so you know he gets in at twelve thirty-eight. He's gone by two. In, in in something I was reading, Doris Nelson, she was the head nurse. In the emergency room at two o'clock, she ordered EVS. You know, she well, I'm, I'm using EVS. She probably ordered trauma room one cleaned. So you know, like think of that in the context of today. Now, what's interesting if you listen to the there's obviously the magic bullet theory, right? Which they talk about a lot in this podcast, and 
you can find a lot, but the magic where the where the bullet was found on the gurney is really interesting. So we're not talking about it here, but the Secret Service agent who finds the magic bullet on the gurney finds it at night. The podcast does a whole episode on this. The Secret Service agent came forward, I think in the late 90s. But anyways, give it a listen. But it's it's interesting to me, forget the magic bullet part of it. But like, imagine today, they're cleaning the room at two o'clock. The gurney's there. A bullet is found hours after, <laughs> like hours after the president is already gone. So it just, it speaks to just a different level then than what that would never occur today, right? Never. <laughs> it's just, it's like the stone ages compared to now. And I don't know which is better, the stone ages or now. That's up for debate, but. <laughs> I, I would think today they would do a forensic analysis on every yeah. piece of dust in the Everything. room. Everything. Right. And it would take days. Doris Nelson isn't taking over trauma room one for the next patient at two o'clock. No, we would just seal the room up until the Secret Service clears it. Yeah. Or it's... FBI, whoever, you know. Uh, but even then, you know, uh, there would probably be a couple days. Right. <laughs> right. Just completely different. So on so this obviously happens on a on a Friday. On so on Saturday, you know, kind of that middle day, you, you guys think you're you're into work that day? Back in 1963, do, do, do you go in, your, your team go in? Is it a decompression day? What do you think you did on that Saturday? I don't think they did anything. Yeah. <laughs> I think they took their weekend. Yeah, yeah. Take, take their weekend. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would think today we might do the same thing. Just uh, I would think bit. there'd be some senior level calls Friday night and, and potentially Saturday. Uh, at the same time, the Secret Service might still be interviewing people on Saturday, mm -hmm. calling people in specifically for interviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you guys are, so back in 1963, you guys are both taking the day off. Slackers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also thinking on the other side of this, you know, yes, but I think it'd be a lot of mourning, especially in the city. Yeah, and, yes. You know, a lot of people were, were sad everywhere, you know, and very shocked. So I still think you know, um, the news and media will still be around there reporting out, um, you know, uh, pre-taping things back then because, you know, wasn't there was some live streaming on 3, 6, and 10. That was it back then. Right. right. With the 3,000 channels or plus we have now. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, like today, you know, I think that people go back to work, but, you know, I think there still will be a, an essence of, of instant command today just because of, the news and media is still trying to report out things and try to, you know, not have them access your facility, you know, to try to get any type of staff uh, right. information, little tidbits that they can use or run with, you know, so I don't trust the media one bit. Yeah. Uh, so I call it shock media. They want to, they all want the stories. They don't care who they run over. Yeah. Do you guys do, you, I mean, it's not prevalent, but if something occurs, do you counsel, not counsel, but do you talk to your staff, Jeff, maybe it's a little bit more with you being down where your location is. You counsel them on talking to the media and being, especially with HIPAA, with, with everything today, you have to talk about it, right? It's the same thing if you have a regulatory person come in like OSHA, DEP, Joint Commission, CMS, you know, you want to, our front staff, you know, um, want to make sure, hey, you know, and then have security kind of escort them to a couch or seating area and say, somebody will be right with you and keep an eye on them. Um, because, you know, at the same time, um, I would still have my facility locked down um, because I don't want people trying to, I have a lot of interest, as I'm sure Dave does too, at his facility. Um, um, I would lock down and have people still post there to keep an eye on, make sure everyone has their ID badges. Yeah. That are supposed to come in, who they are, supposed to be who they are. I don't want people trying to sneak in and trying to wander through. Um, 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 you know, trying to sneak in, you know, through those things. Um, sorry, I said the uh, survey team walk in. Um, okay. <laughs> tell them, tell yeah. them they're not supposed to be there. It's 1963. There you go. <laughs> don't know that. Yeah. I, you know, and I know we're coming up on the end. It was very it was interesting to me on. So the 23rd, then we come November 24th. Lee Harvey Oswald is shot. Harvey Lee Harvey Oswald is taken to Parkland Hospital. 
Lee Harvey Oswald is taken to trauma room two where Conley is right across the hall from where JFK was kept. Talking about kind of the trauma and the communication, I'd imagine for those employees in your departments, that Monday is quite the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh they were right on the lines of historical of history. Probably didn't even know it at the time. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time. Anything in closing that we didn't get to or any thoughts that you had? Any any anything to to bring up that that we just didn't get to during the call. And I appreciate your time and your, uh, you know, obviously your thoughts. Anything you want to finish with, I'll give you guys the last word. No, it was a very interesting conversation. Um, you know, I, I was young at the time. I do remember it vaguely. Um, but it, this certainly stirred some thoughts and some memories. So I do appreciate your time and Jeff, your time as well. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Jeff, you good? Or no, history yeah. guy. Um, no, I love the, I love the mixture of the topic we had. It's, it's different, you know. If we ever do this again, it'd be cool. It'd be yeah. yeah, absolutely. I I love bringing the two together because I like both of them. Um, yeah. So we have my guest, Dave Neely, Maine Medical Center. Jeff Henney, UPenn Health. Gentlemen, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Thank, thank you, Jeff. you, guys. Peter Martin from the Healthcare Facilities Network. As always, thank you for tuning in, and we'll be back.